many wonderful things about Washington, D.C. is the abundance of museums that we have to visit here. Uh, not only do we have locals who spend a lot of time visiting these museums, but we have a, a bustling tourist industry in which people come from all over the world to visit these museums. And you could say that each one of these museums tells a story. Each one of these museums tells a story, if you think about it. The Air and Space Museum is organized to tell the story of aviation, space flight, and planetary science. The Newseum is organized to tell the story of the evolution of print and electronic communication. The National Museum of African American History and Culture is organized to tell the story of African Americans and their struggles and their accomplishments and in their contributions to culture. But one of the things that we, we fail to realize, or, or at the very least, fail to appreciate, is that each one of these museums has a curator or a team of curators. And a curator, if you're not familiar, a curator has the responsibility of managing or overseeing the museum. The curator determines what content gets into the museum and what content is kept out of the museum. And their goal as the curator is to ensure that the content that gets into the museum is in line with the theme of the museum, the purpose of the museum. Their goal is to put content within the museum that matches up with the theme of the museum and to keep content out that is in conflict with the theme of the museum. The curator makes it their job to make decisions on content in line with the purpose of the museum. And in a similar way, our lives individually and our lives corporately as a community are intended to be organized in such a way that they tell the story of God. Our lives are meant to communicate the story of God's love, God's grace and truth, God's renovating work and his hope in the world, our lives are meant to be a demonstration, an, an explanation, an expression of that story of God. That's, that's part of the way that our lives are meant to function in this world. They are meant to point to God and his story. And the goal is that other people might have an opportunity to tune into the story of God based upon how they experience us. But one of the things that we fail to often realize is that the story of God is not reflected among us by happenstance. It doesn't just happen. No museum in this city just kinda happened to come together. Each one of these museums was the careful planned intention of the curator. And in a similar way, y'all, the story of God only becomes clear in our lives as individuals and in our corporate life when we take up the responsibility to be curators of our own hearts and to participate in curating the hearts of our brothers and sisters in our community. We are responsible for curating our hearts, for managing, for overseeing what gets into our hearts, what is kept out of our hearts. And we have a corporate responsibility to one another to play that role in each other's lives. We are to be curators. We have to determine, we have to make decisions 
about what's getting in and what's being kept out. And everything we do affects the content of our hearts. You realize that? How we spend our time, what we read and how we read it, what we watch and how we watch it, what we listen to and how we listen to it, the relationships that we nurture, the relationships that we neglect, all of these things are decisions that we make that impact how we curate our hearts, that impact the content of our hearts. We're constantly making decisions on how we will curate our hearts. And the story of Israel is largely the story of how a group of people failed to curate their hearts well. That's one way of framing up the story of God's people of old. They failed to curate their hearts well. And in our text for today, the writer of the book of Hebrews, the writer of this sermon, is going to hold Israel up as a cautionary tale, encouraging us to curate our hearts. And as he establishes this comparison between Israel and his listeners, we're going to see that we have the same troubles that they had, but we also have the same God that they had. The same troubles and the same God. So let's look at our first point as we consider how we have the same troubles. We read a large portion of this, of this sermon just a minute ago because it is a literary unit. And the arc of this literary unit is very important for us to understand. You need to understand the arc of this unit. And I want you to see how this arc, how the, how the writer of this sermon lays out the arc of this passage in order to draw us into a story, in order to draw us into a world of reference that is going to help illustrate his point. He begins with Moses, then he moves to wilderness and rebellion, then he moves to the theme of rest, then he hits Joshua, then he hits the word of God and calls it sharper than a two-edged sword. Now, the Hellenistic Jews who were the first audience, the, the audience of the writer of the book of Hebrews, this sermon, his audience, they were Hellenistic Jews. They knew the Bible. And for the, the, the writer of this sermon to, to begin with Moses and to take that, that thematic arc was to bring them into the world of the book of Numbers, chapters 12 through 14. He's bringing them into this passage so that they will understand themselves as the new wilderness community. The church as the new wilderness community. He's drawing on the book of Numbers to establish this landscape for the audience. And then he's going to begin to draw comparisons. He's going to help them to see themselves in light of this contrast, in light of this picture. So, in verses 1 through 6, Moses is brought into the picture. Now, he was God's designated mediator. He was, he was the leader of the people on their way out of Egypt, on their way into the promised land. God said, I'm going to take you out of slavery in Egypt, and I'm going to take you to the promised land in Canaan. And Moses is going to be your leader. Moses is the mediator. All right? All they had to do was follow Moses and listen to the words that Moses spoke. 
And here's why. If you notice in the text, in the first six verses, there isn't a mention of Moses, right? In verse five, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. That is a direct quote from Numbers chapter 12. And this, this is what the passage says. And this is after Moses' brother and sister start arguing about, about the fact that Moses is chosen to be the leader by God. And they're like, don't we have something to say? Shouldn't our voices matter? And God shuts down right there. He says, there aren't going to be any competing voices with my servant, Moses. There aren't going to be any competing voices with my ordained leader. This is what God says. And the Lord said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant, Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Do you see, Moses is the mouthpiece of the Lord. To say that he speaks mouth to mouth with him is to say that it goes from the Lord's mouth to Moses' mouth. And so for the people to listen to Moses is for them to listen to the Lord's voice. They are to listen to him because he is the, he's going to be their leader that gets them to the promised land. This is a group of, of people who were slaves. They did not know rest. And God says, I'm taking you to the, to the place of rest. I'm taking you to the land of promise, but you must follow Moses. All the people had to do was listen to Moses and take his directions. But in this text, look at what, look at what the argument is doing. Moses is lifted up as the ultimate leader of Israel. But then he says, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. He's worthy of greater consideration than Moses. Because Jesus is faithful not just as a servant in God's house. He's faithful as a son over God's house. How much more should you listen to the voice of Jesus? The wilderness generation, y'all, they experienced the benefits of Moses' revelation and leadership. They're on the verge of entering the promised land in chapters 12 through 14. They're on the cusp. They're not in the middle of the journey. They're on the very edge of crossing over into the promise, crossing over into the rest of God. But something goes awry as they're on the verge. They're at the doorpost of God's rest. They're in the home stretch. They're in the final lap of the race, in the final seconds of the game, and they fall apart. It all goes down the drain because of unbelief and their hardness of heart. They didn't hold on to their confidence and hope, and so they lost the gift of a homeland. Do you see the comparison that the author of Hebrews is making? He's saying to his audience, you're not just somewhere in the middle of the, the journey. You're not somewhere in the middle of the wilderness. You are on the cusp of entering into the fullness of God's rest. You're on the, the verge of the land of promise. But do not fail to enter into the land of promise through unbelief. You're positioned just like Israel of old. You're, you're so close. You got to press on. You have to endure. You have to curate your hearts 
so that you do not fall into unbelief and hardness of heart. Then the sermon turns more directly into a warning and shows us that we have the same troubles as wandering Israel. What, what, was, their, what was their great trouble? What was their, what was their biggest problem? One thing we, we can say, based upon uh, God's interpretation of their sojourn, is that their greatest problems were not their circumstances. It wasn't the wilderness. It wasn't the desert. It wasn't the food situation. It wasn't the water. It wasn't their bills. It wasn't their job. It wasn't their kids. It was their hearts. And something you should notice throughout this passage is the emphasis in the text that is put on the heart. There's a wilderness context and a heart focus. If you want to understand this passage, you need to see that it's a wilderness context on the verge of leaving the wilderness and entering the promised land, and it's a heart focus. You go back and read Numbers chapters 12 through 14, and you will, you will gain greater clarity on this passage. But look at how often the author of Hebrews, this, remember this is a sermon, this is his rhetorical hook. You know how sometimes I, I try to alliterate to try and drive a point? This is essentially the kind of thing that the that the writer of this sermon is doing. Look at this, verse eight. Do not harden your heart. Verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Verse 12, an evil, unbelieving heart. Verse 15, do not harden your hearts. Chapter four, verse seven, do not harden your hearts. Chapter four, verse 12, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There is a simultaneous emphasis on the heart and entering rest. The repetition, enter rest, watch your heart. Enter rest, watch your heart. Enter rest, curate your heart. Curate your loves. In other words, we as the new wilderness community have the same troubles that Israel had. When we look back at their story, we gain access into the nature of our struggles as human beings. There is nothing uncommon. You know, one of the most alienating things, one of, one, of the, one of the ways that we trick ourselves so often is when we're going through hard times, we tend to think that our struggles are, are unique, that there is something so special about us. You know, we're Americans, so everything has to be special about us, right? My sufferings are, are special. They're, they're especially difficult. My afflictions are especially brutal. My, my challenges and my temptations are especially strong. And you know what happens when you tell yourself that? You alienate yourself. And you, you make it difficult to share those struggles with other people who care. If you feel that you're particularly jacked up, or particularly corrupted, or particularly you're struggling in a way that they can't understand, then naturally you will isolate yourself. And it is in isolation that these troubles are magnified. It's in isolation where you think, no, 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 I'll figure it out by myself. I'll work it out by myself. That, 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 that self-medicating thing, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's, it's deadly. It's life-stealing. But our troubles tend to have that effect on us. But what we see in this text is that our trouble is the same as, as any human being's trouble has ever been. It is our hearts. Our greatest problem is our hearts. Not our marriages, not our relationships, not our jobs. I repeat, not our kids. What's going on? Ah, oh, you know, 
And the first thing we struggle with, if someone asks you, you're having a bad time, and someone says to you, what's the matter? You say, this thing out here. And if you train yourself to always look out there for the problem, then you won't wrestle with the thing that's really at, at issue, which is your own heart. The first thing that you should be thinking in your own heart, it doesn't diminish the outside troubles. It just puts them in their proper context. The first impulse that you should have is when, when someone asks, what's wrong? You should say, me, me, my heart. I, I just, the way that I'm responding to this is just so off kilter. I don't know why I'm getting so angry, but my heart is just really enraged at this. I don't know why I'm so impatient, but my heart, oh. That's the first thing you should take notice of. Why are you so restless, my heart? And here's an aside that I want to bring up that I think this text raises. It doesn't take it directly on, but it's a side note, I think, of this text's focus on the heart. And it's this. If you find yourself ready to turn from God to something else, the very minute that you run into troubles and trials, then here's what's going on. Here's the diagnosis. You ready to turn from God the minute the troubles come up? You ready to turn from God the minute that afflictions rise in your life? Here is the diagnosis. You don't want God himself as the great end and delight of your life. You don't want him. You want something else and you want to use him to get to something else you're really after. Therein lies the heart trouble. Therein lies the heart corruption. This is the answer to every woe of our souls. And the reason why we, we lack endurance, because at the bottom of it, we don't live out of a love for God. We want to use God so often. We want to use the Christian faith. We want to use things relative to God to get something that we think is more valuable or more important or more delightful than him. And therein lies the need for us to curate our own hearts. Think about it. If you get frustrated with God when troubles come in, you have to ask yourself, what is it that you really, really love that is being jeopardized here? Because if God is your love, if God is your delight, if God is your hope, if he is your all in all, and you know that he can never be lost, you know that he is always present to you, then afflictions cannot dislodge you from what you love most. And they should not threaten your faith the way that they do. If you find yourself with a threatened faith, you have to ask yourself the question, what is it that I love most? And then you're beginning to do the right kind of heart work that will set you in the right direction to solving the issues. There are plenty of examples through the history of the church through, through the story of scripture, of individuals who had hellacious external circumstances, but because God was the chief love of their hearts, because God was the chief delight of their souls, they were able to weather it with joy. They were able to weather it with hope. They were not willing to give up their faith. This is the most dangerous thing. This is the most dangerous and most precarious, you know, description of the hearers of this original sermon. They were in danger of hardness of heart. Christian spirituality, y'all, at its most basic is to long for, to love, to delight in God as the great end 
and purpose of our lives. He is the goal. He is the prize. He is not a tool to leverage or an instrument to use to get something else that you want. He is a lover whom you love before all lovers. He is a king whom you worship without rival. He is a father whom you trust without regard. No matter what's happening around you, God is personal. He is not a force to be leveraged for your own selfish ambitions. He is the prize. When you have him, when you know him, when your loves are set on him as the highest priority of your heart, it really contextualizes the stresses and strains and struggles that you're facing in your life. This is the bottom of it. This is the bottom of it. You become like what you love. Do you know that? You become like what you love. Just like you become like what you worship. You are what you worship. You are what you love. You become like the things that you love. A hard heart is a heart that becomes dead and lifeless because it is set on dead and lifeless things, not the living God. That's how the heart becomes hard. Going astray in your heart is turning the full force of your love or aiming your love away from God towards something else. That, that is, that is a, a going astray in your heart. Going astray in your heart is pointing your love at something else in full force and saying, I want and love that. I want and love that. When the most lovely God himself is right here, getting small parts, getting the crumbs off of, off of your table, getting the crust of the bread. That's what, that's what we're seeing in this text. This is the danger. The danger is not that they're going to suffer hard things. The danger is not that they're going to lose their jobs. The danger is not that they're going to lose their standing in culture. The danger is that when temptation comes, their hearts will grow hard. And they will misdirect their loves. They will prize social standing more than God. And so they won't be willing to endure when that temperature gets turned up on them. You see that? This, this is the nature of the struggle. An evil, unbelieving heart doubts God's word about himself, and it doubts God's word of love over his people. We have the same problem as Israel, but we also have the same God, and this is where we get the hope of this passage. This is where we get the good news of this passage. We have the same God. Here is the powerful point of comparison, y'all. In the story of Numbers, chapters 13 through 14, Moses, there are representatives that are sent ahead to spy out the land, all right? Now check this out. This is, this is why he says that the gospel was preached to them just like it's preached to us. God is always about that good news. And here's what happens in the passage. In Numbers chapters 13 through 14, there is a group of spies from Israel. They're sent into the promised land to spy out the land, 
And they come back, and this one particular man named Caleb, he comes back. He has been to the promised land, and he comes back from the promised land with the fruit of that land, and he gives a good word of report. He says, we can take this land. It's going to be a fight, but it can be ours. It's going to be a struggle, but God is on our side. We can enter into the land of promise. Take heart. But even in a more poignant way in this passage, the implication of this passage is this. We have someone better than Caleb at our disposal, in our presence, bearing witness. Jesus himself has gone ahead into the promised land. He has brought back the fruit of that promised land, the Holy Spirit, and he is bearing witness to the fact that that land can be ours. We can enter that rest. Yes, it's going to be a fight, but we can enter that rest. We're going to have to battle our own selfishness, but we can enter that rest. We're going to have to battle our own idolatry but we can enter that rest. We're going to have to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, but we can enter that rest because God is on our side assuring our victory. That's good news. That's good news, y'all. Jesus is the spy who has gone ahead. He has shown us that death can be defeated. He is bringing back a taste of glory through the Spirit. We get to taste the fruit of the land of glory through the Holy Spirit. We're on the cusp of it, y'all, but we got to press on. We got to press on. We are almost there, but we got to fight. We got to press on to make this rest our own. We must enter this rest. And the way that we enter this rest is by curating our hearts. You see in the passage that what threatens our ability to enter into the rest of God is our hard hearts. The way in which we persevere is by keeping watch over our hearts. You know, You can do many things externally that are good and important. Keep doing them. But don't do them at the expense of checking in on your own heart and its loves. In a very practical way, and and I'm very grateful for this in our theological tradition here at Grace Mosaic, the way that you curate your heart, it's not magic, all right? You don't need to go to some special event and get, have some special experience, all right? Any more than you just show up at the gym one day and you have some special experience and you look like Arnold, right? Like, that doesn't happen like that. You actually have to, you have to hit the regimen, all right? You don't get a body like this by sitting, no, I'm, I'm kidding, y'all, by sitting around eating donuts, right? Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> You see, it's like everything in life. You get good at it through practices. You are formed through practice. You are formed through the repetition of good habits. And what I love about our theological heritage is this. You don't need some special kind of thing to happen. What you need to do is you need to turn to the ordinary means of God's grace. The ordinary way that you experience God's grace is through the word, the sacraments, and prayer. And you know what facilitates experiencing the means of grace? Word, prayer, and the sacraments? Corporate worship is one. This is supposed to be one of the most formative things that we do as a community. We gather, we worship, we try to shake off 
the old idols. We try, to, we try to realign our loves. We try to sing ourselves into a new way of thinking. We try to encourage one another. You notice the emphasis. Encourage one another as long as it's called today. We need each other. You can't, you can't do it by yourself. But we come and we engage the means of grace in corporate worship. And we also engage the means of grace Monday through Saturday through community. It's in community that once again, we bring the word to one another. We remind one another of who we are in Jesus. We remind one another of who God is and what God has promised to do. We remind one another of what God has already done to demonstrate his faithfulness. We bring the word, the means of grace to bear in one another's lives. But we also pray for one another. The means of grace is the way in which you curate your heart. It's not magic. It's discipleship, period, all right? You don't need some kind of special experience. If that happens, fantastic. We're not against that. If you feel like you just had a particular experience of the Lord in this particular moment, praise God for that. That's amazing. But don't feel like you, can't, you cannot curate your heart without that kind of experience. You can as people pray over you, as you bring your needs to others, and they serve as, as the arms and, and, and hands of Jesus in your life, as you have to confess your sins to other people and you hear them declaring God's pardon over your life, you're experiencing the most heart-formative kinds of, kinds of things. It's that ordinary, y'all. God has always been delighted to work through the ordinary things. He works through ordinary communities to do his extraordinary things. He works through ordinary bread and wine to, to, to lavish his grace upon his people. He works through ordinary preachers. He works through ordinary living ex experiences. He, he works through the ordinary. God always has. He's never been bound by extraordinary people or extraordinary circumstances. And that's a relief. That's a relief. So, I want you to think about this. Take these questions home. Take these questions to your community. How are you doing right now with curating your own heart? What are you letting in? If you're, if you're being brutally honest with yourself, what would you say that you love most right now? And what is the evidence of that? What do you love most right now? And what is the evidence of that? Ask yourself the question, what kind of practices or habits might I instill in my life to readjust or to reshape, refashion my loves? If you want your love for God to take precedence over your other loves, engage the means of grace. Maybe you got to start reading the Bible. Maybe you need to start carving out time to pray. Maybe you need to... Uh, to start sharing some real stuff in your, in your community group or your men's or women's group instead of the same old surface level stuff. Maybe, maybe you need to take a risk like that. Maybe you need to start coming to this table being reminded that this is, this is not just a reminder of what Jesus has done. It is that, but it's more than that. This is communion. He is present with us by his spirit. Do you intend to come here to this table and have your faith nourished and strengthened, you should.
These are the means of grace. This is how you curate your heart. And this is how we must curate one another's hearts. Let's take responsibility. Let's not allow our American Western individualism to have an undue effect on our spirituality. We are a covenant community. We not only need each other, we are bound together formally in the eyes of God. So let's take responsibility for one another. Let's not be okay with seeing our family in the faith killing themselves, starving their souls, malnourishing their hearts. Let's take responsibility in love to see not only our own individual hearts, but the hearts of those in our, in our family of faith here at Grace Mosaic. Let's take responsibility. Let's be a team of curators so that people in Northeast D.C. will have an opportunity to see God's story expressed through the, through the, through the lives of our members and through our life together as God's family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this message. We pray that you would help us to take it to heart what you have said to us from the book of Hebrews in chapters three and four. And we pray, God, that we would not harden our hearts, that we would not rebel. We pray, God, that you would help us to enter this rest. We know we're on the cusp of it. We're at the doorway. But help us to enter in by faith. We ask, God, that you would Help us to engage in the means of grace this week. We pray that you would give us the courage and the focus and determination to put new practices into place, to, to stop old habits that are stealing life from us, whether that's the habit of staying late at work or always having our mind turning about work, or whether that's the, the habit of neglecting our, our, our spouse or our, our roommates, whether it's the habit of of not really caring about men's or women's group or community time to connect with other people. Help us, God, to prioritize the things that are life-giving so that we may curate our hearts, so that our loves may be chiefly set upon you. We ask for your grace in this, in Jesus' name, amen.